Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we are taking a look at a new adaptation of Pinocchio, this time from Guillermo del Toro. It's actually our first time covering one of his films on the show. Uh, He's, of course, come up as a puzzle piece many, many times over the last five years, but somehow never got around to one of his movies, so I'm very excited to talk about it. Plus, I loved this movie. And uh, we have two guests today uh, from Because You Watched podcast. We've got Charlie Harris and Francesco Corio, and uh, we got a great conversation. Lots of interesting puzzle pieces, and uh, that's coming up in a second. Before we get to it, I do want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. We are square in the middle of that end-of-the-year rush, and there are just going to be non-stop episodes. I don't even know where I'm going to fit them all in, but uh, lots of movies to cover. So make sure you're subscribed so you'll find out about all the new episodes as they come. And, of course, you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod, and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And, of course, I have my new album, More Content, coming out, so I've got to mention it. Uh, These intros will get a little shorter once we get to the new year, but right now i got to keep mentioning the new album. Uh, It's up for pre-order right now at the time uh, that this should be up, and the actual album comes out December 30th on all the streaming. It's called More Content. Uh, We've got a couple of music videos coming, and uh, we already have one out, and a lot of really great stuff coming, so keep an eye out for that. And, yeah, let's talk about Pinocchio. All right, we're going to talk about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is a really fun new version of this movie. A a weird year where we're getting two. This is one of those things where uh, every once in a while, Hollywood will pump out two of the same concept, and uh, maybe that'll come up later in the conversation. But speaking of twos, we've got two guests on this one. We've got Charlie and Francesco from Because You Watched. Guys, how's it going? Very well, thank you. How, How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. Lots of podcasting to do. It's that end of the year push, and uh, there's <laughs> there's too many movies to watch, but uh, I'm trying to get them all in, and uh, at least some of them are awesome, and I, I really enjoyed this movie. I don't know how you guys felt about it. We'll get into it as we're uh, talking about it. I was not necessarily expecting to like it as much as I did. I mean, I like Guillermo del Toro, who doesn't, but like I, I really had a good time with it. Before we get into it too much, though, why don't you guys tell uh, our listeners about your podcast? Right, so for the last nearly a year, mm-hmm. we've been doing Because You Watched, which is 
essentially a podcast where we take a really well-known and very popular film and then use that to discuss films that are related or films that are similar or films that scratch a similar itch that we then compare and recommend to listeners. It's a way of using pre-existing canon to then talk about lesser-known films for people that are looking to expand the films that they watch. Yeah, and the alternative films that we present are purposely quite niche or we purposely spend a lot of time looking for them so it's not the obvious, you know, first Google result that you'll find. Sure. Or at least that's yeah. the intention. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it's funny when you guys got in touch with me, I'm like, you know, it's not that far off. It's like it's its own separate thing, but like it's not that far off from what we do here in looking for these kind of connections to other movies. And, uh, you know, if you want to get into other films that deal with similar themes or come from similar places. And uh, it's it's an interesting way to go about doing it. And uh, I know we're talking about getting me over on your show uh, one of these days soon. I'm sure it's going to be a fun time when we get to do that. And I'm happy to have you guys here to talk about Pinocchio today. It's nice for our podcast to have a cousin. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, so b before we get into it, did you guys watch the other Pinocchio this year? I have, you haven't. Is that I, right, Francesco? Yeah, I couldn't put myself through that. Sorry. <laughs> That's uh, how I Robert, felt, the, yeah. <laughs> the Robert Zemeckis one. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, I mean, you never know so how bad. many Pinocchios are going to turn up. Because you, you could be talking about one I've not even heard of. Because That's true. For some reason, people are always adapting it. Well, there's technically yeah. three this year. There's the uh, Russian CG animation with really? that terrible trailer. Right. Yeah. That's with right. With Shaw. <laughs> I don't remember the Sure, <laughs> I'd watch that one before the uh, Zemeckis one, but uh, yeah, uh, this this one though, I, I was saying that I wasn't necessarily expecting to like it that much. I I should say like before we start getting into puzzle pieces or any of that, um, I I'm not somebody who goes back and rewatches like the old animated classics that often like you know sometimes it'll kind of pop up and I'll end up watching one, but um, it's not really necessarily my wheelhouse. I don't think I've seen like the old Disney animated Pinocchio since I was like maybe six or seven or something like that. And I even get some of these mixed up. Like for a minute, I thought Tinkerbell was going to be in this. Like that's how kind of mixed up I was on my Pinocchio. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I didn't really know what to expect going into it other than Guillermo del Toro does awesome stuff and I love stop motion animation. And so let's give this a try. And so that's why I was like, Pleasantly surprised. Well, we actually went to what we thought was a preview screening of the film um, organized by the uh, London Film Festival. Turned out we were actually at the premiere and oh, Guillermo nice. del Toro and all the actors just turned up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And did a brief like Q&A, um, which, was, which was a lot of fun. It was, it was a nice surprise that we accidentally went to a premiere. I do have to yeah. say, Del Toro is probably one of the most articulate directors to put in front of a mic. Whenever he gives a speech, it's always so spellbinding. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's so true. I, I love, uh, like, any time he shows up on, like, whether it's an award show or some kind of interview, like, he is definitely one of the most fun directors to listen to because he... His love for the form like really shines through on everything that he talks about. So, yeah, I completely agree. And that must have been a uh, a great premiere to be at. But um, yeah, let's start getting into some puzzle pieces here, and we'll talk about what we liked and maybe what didn't work as well along the way. But uh, let's start off with Charlie. What do you have for your first puzzle piece? My first puzzle piece uh, is related to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, in that it is produced by the Jim Henson Company. 
Mm. And so my pick is 1979's Muppet movie. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I picked that as opposed to other Jim Henson films is because there are some interesting similarities to Pinocchio, particularly this form of Pinocchio, specifically in the way that it sort of plucks um, a fish out of water and with their naivety has to explore outside of their comfort zone. Mm. So in Pinocchio, obviously, that's the titular character. In Muppet Movie, it's Kermit. And also, they're pursuing fame and fortune for, I would say, ill-advised reasons in both cases. They're different reasons, but in one, you have Pinocchio, who is pursuing it because of a misinterpretation of the nature of his relationship with his father. And with uh, the Muppets, it's because Kermit believes that actively pursuing fame and fortune and stardom is a way to improve the world and make people happy. Right, right. That both, like, I, I think the big draw here, aside from Guillermo del Toro, is the stop motion animation. And so, like, bringing up the Muppets and, like, you know, those kinds of animation that are, like, you know, it's not. Uh, animation animation it's like its own you know separate thing and this has been a really interesting year for stop motion animation i mean we had phil tippett's mad god and uh, we had the house on netflix and there's been a couple of wendell and wild which just came Mm -hmm. out um it's been a really interesting year for you know these kind of alternative forms of animation and i i think people that love del toro's other work probably have all been waiting for him to do something like this. And so it's it's cool the way it kind of came together with what essentially would have been a family-friendly thing. And it still basically is, but kind of gets into some of his darker tones too. Well, it's something that uh, Del Toro said at the premiere was, this isn't a children's film. This is a film that children can watch. If yeah. their parents talk to them. Is what he added. <laughs> Which, you gotta explain yeah. the fascism and all that. <laughs> but again, it, it comes to that thing of the difference between digital animation and practical animation, right down to the debate that people are having about CGI versus practical effects, is that you get this sense of weight and you get this sense of atmosphere from something actually existing in a space that you don't if it's... Not to trivialise the work the VFX artists do, because... God knows I could never do it. Mm. But the limitations of that form are that stuff can often feel quite intangible and quite rubbery and quite detached from the stakes of the film. And I think that Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio and the Muppets, by using practical puppetry, you get a real sense of these characters and objects existing within the reality of this world. And I, I... I really appreciate that, and it gets me so much more involved and engaged in a story. Especially with the Toro being historically a huge uh, proponent of practical effects, right? With Pan's Labyrinth, with Shape of Water, and something we haven't mentioned about Pinocchio, but it's so well animated. Like, I was generally forgetting I was watching a stop-motion film so many times just because the frame rate was so smooth. Yeah, absolutely. And the look of it is going to come up in one of my puzzle pieces a little later, too, but... um... Yeah, the the look of it is is incredible and very unique and uh yeah, it's it's wild how well stop motion animated it is. It's it's kind of crazy. But uh let's move on to Francesco's first piece. What do you got? 
Well, it uh, fits really well with what we were talking about because it's another stop motion film that was inspired by the same statement that from Del Toro that Charlie just uh, cited. It's a 2016 French language film called My Life as a Zucchini, also known as My Life as a Courgette over here in Europe, uh, written by Celine Siama of uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire fame. And the reason why I'm talking about this film is that it really hits that spot of a film that is accessible by children, but it deals with very, very dark themes. So the inciting incident of the film is that, uh, I'm gonna go into very dark territory here, but <laughs> the main protagonist is this uh, six, eight-year-old child who has an alcoholic abusive mother, and he uh, by accident causes her death at the beginning of the film and is therefore sent to an orphanage. And in this orphanage, he makes friends with a bunch of you know other kids who all come from very, abusive, traumatizing backgrounds. But mm. all of this is done through stop motion animation, through a narrative that um, doesn't show any of the actual darkness, just leaves it hanging in the background, and which is therefore accessible by children to watch. And it's just such a such an amazing film, especially with it being, you know, a foreign language uh, animated film that we don't, something that we don't see very much of nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like, I've never seen that one and it sounds really awesome. And uh, we went through like kind of a dry period of not a lot of stop motion. Like, like I said, this year has been kind of interesting to see so many uh, projects that are taking that on, but there's usually like, it, it's always like such a curiosity, like, Oh, look at this, a stop motion film and how cool that is. And uh, now we're getting a whole bunch of them. I think it's kind of like as an art form, people are seeing um, just how versatile it is to, to do different kind of stories like that. And like in both of these cases, my life as a zucchini and here in Pinocchio, like tell a story that really kind of goes to very different audiences and can kind of be different things to different people. Mm -hmm. For sure. Cause neither of you have seen it. So <laughs> yeah. But I want to see it too. It's, yeah. It sounds but really, that's really why cool. We're here, cause we're, you know, because you watch is about watching lesser known films. So that's why <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you haven't seen yet. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know what? I might as well pop this one up to my uh, first piece since we were talking about the look of it all. And so uh, I'm going to go with a movie that maybe a few more people have seen called Avatar uh, <laughs> from, <laughs> from James Cameron. Yeah. Um, the, the thing about the look of this film is I kept asking myself, like, what am I looking at exactly? Like, is this stop motion? Is this CGI? Is, uh, is some of this... Um, interspersed with real world uh filming like like i really couldn't quite put my finger on it like what exactly it is that i'm seeing unfold on this screen and that is the exact feeling that i got when watching avatar for the first time in the theater where it's like you really can't tell like is this is this computer generated images that i'm looking at is it uh live action is it just straight up animated and that blending of styles uh, really creates something unique and that you've never really seen before. And whereas like you think of stop motion, you think of like you're seeing the fingerprints and all that stuff. And you think of like the kind of jerky animation that like kind of comes with that uh, style normally. This just doesn't have any of that. And it kind of leaves you wondering like exactly what goes into the making of a project like this. And I think that that uniqueness is something that I'm sure Del Toro, it was part of the uh, the idea, like, I don't want to make just a stop motion. I want to make something that's going to, 
you know, feel like something you've never seen before, especially with adapting a movie that, you know, a story that's been told so many different times before. I mean, you really believe that Aang is properly fighting the Fire Nation um, yeah. in, in some of those uh, airbending scenes. Uh, oh, the, the, no, uh, that, that one. Sure. <laughs> That's what we're talking about, right? M. Night Shyamalan's Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but you know, regarding Avatar, um, you know, there's the endless debate about, oh, does Avatar deserve its place as one of the highest box office successes of all time? And the other day I saw the Way of Water trailer in the cinema and I couldn't care less about the narrative of the Way of Water. I want to see that film in the cinema. Just mm -hmm. having seen that trailer on the big screen, I was, I I'm going to see that on the big screen no matter what. There's no other way of watching that film, I don't think. I think the way that Avatar really set itself above and beyond, even if I'm not the biggest fan of that film in particular, what really impressed me about it is, like Pinocchio, there is this really well-realized environment and ecosystem that the characters and the narrative are both existing in. Yeah. And the fact that everything on Pandora seems to have its own, like I said, ecosystem. In this sense, I do mean literally that <laughs> it, it is this alien natural world that seems to have its own internal logic. And obviously, Pinocchio is ostensibly set in our world, but everything in it feels living and breathing and fluid and dynamic. And that's really impressive in both cases. And I think when a movie can pull that off, that's one of the most wonderful things in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think like some props are deserved to Netflix for this year because like, I'm a big, uh, you know, theatrical experience purist, and uh, they are at least trying to release these things for like little one week or two week stints in the theaters. Uh, this Pinocchio film, uh, Glass Onion is coming up next week at the time of this recording, which will get a one week run, at least here in the United States. And um white noise later this month um you know they're they're trying and these movies do need to be seen in the theater i feel like i mean to really get the the scope of it all is uh you know th these are big movies and just because they're financed by a streamer like it they should at least get that chance for some people to get to see them that way hmm. yeah no i i agree and you know going to cinema is quite fun Absolutely. Like, as, as well as how it changes the viewing of a film, just being in a room and not being able to check your phone and being around other people, ex hopefully experiencing the same thing for the first time. There's something really wonderful about that on a personal level as well as an artistic level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Charlie, let's go back to you for your next piece. All right. My next piece is 1985's Terry Gilliam-directed film, Brazil. Nice. Uh, I wanted to go into a film that does deal not so much with the politics of fascism specifically, but one that does deal with the societal expectations and limitations of an authoritarian regime. And you see that in Pinocchio and you see it in Brazil, Brazil that was very influenced also by uh, 1984. Uh, the original title for it was 1984 and a half. Hmm. And there's something, again, really in really interesting about the way that Gilliam is projecting this idea of a society that is fundamentally concerned with stamping out individualism and creativity and free thought, yeah, but doing so in a 
fairly anonymous way that on the outset it looks like an alternate version of our world rather than an all-encompassing new form of society like you might get in 1984 and i think what's very nefarious about fascism in italy and fascism in Guillermo del Toro's pinocchio is that it changes life enough to put limitations on it but it can be ignored mm-hmm. as long as you play by the rules and if you're not actively trying to live your life as a free person you can compromise certain principles to live an easy life and you get that with the um with basically the town fascist commander character that he is the leader of this community but the community is still existing yeah and i think it's um very interesting the way that they do it with Geppetto's character because Geppetto is exactly what you described, someone who's not been actively persecuted by the fascist authorities, but who is happy to, you know, keep his head down and play by the rules until, you know, his own family and his own son, uh, you know, <laughs> functionally his son's life gets sure. jeopardized by these uh, fascist authorities and then, you know, decides to go into action. Yeah, and it's also when he's being exploited. Because so much of authoritarianism is exploitation of either your work or just your very existence. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. the, and so the reason I choose Brazil is that it's about a man that is happy to live in a fantasy world and exist in an unsatisfactory real world that is compromising his freedom. Mm-hmm until he just can't. And I think that with what we see with Geppetto in the first act of uh, Pinocchio, you're seeing someone that is living not in fantasy, but in grief. And he's hiding himself away from the world in grief. Until he has a reason to exist and a reason to live again, even though it's not always easy, it puts him at odds with the structures of authority and. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting parallels there. The other reason I wanted to mention Terry Gilliam, there, well, there are two other reasons. One is that Terry Gilliam obviously got his start as a stop-motion animator. Sure, yeah. Um, on Monty Python, and uh, you can see, if you want to choose a particular film, then there's some great stop-motion animation in Holy Grail, mm. um, which I really like. I think it might be my favorite Monty Python film. That would be a, a good pick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, there are only four, but still. <laughs> and the other thing is that Terry Gilliam is, like Del Toro on this particular movie, is infamous for having his projects stalled and disrupted by, you know, what's called development hell. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Guillermo del Toro was trying to make this movie happen for nearly a decade, mm-hmm. and it's finally. Re- Released and it's got a very limited theatrical run. And likewise, I mean, the most famous example is um, Terry Gilliam's um, Don Quixote, sure, which is uh, you know famous for going through years of development and also different casting choices. Yeah, no. Whether we like it or not, we do have to thank Netflix for making Pinocchio happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been made. I I I totally agree with that. Absolutely, and 
Yeah, that that I remember like just a few years ago he had mentioned that this was like kind of dead in the water and it just not happening and here we are today. But uh but yeah, Brazil's a really interesting one. It, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before we started the conversation of like that I don't know the Pinocchio story that well. I have to assume there's not much in the way of fascism and uh, authoritative no, no. In, in the original. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and I think mixing these two very disparate ideas, uh, you know, with a musical. There's some incredible musical numbers in this as well, and and the form of stop motion. I mean, there's just so much being layered into this. It's not surprising uh, that he kept pushing and kept wanting to make this thing over the years i mean it it must have all just been like like this this long gestating idea of like god if i could put all these things together it's going to be something special and magical and kind of capture that same magic that the original pinocchio story captured yeah and um del toro mentioned that his impetus in choosing this setting is because he reads pinocchio as a celebration of disobedience which is something that, you know, sips into so much of his early work, like Pan's Labyrinth, sure. The Devil's Backbone. Like a lot of his early films are set in a fascist, under a fascist regime with children as the main protagonist. But Pinocchio is the quintessential, like, let's celebrate going against the grain, skipping school, uh, not doing what adults tell you. Uh, because you feel like doing something else or because you feel like that's unmotivated. And the Toro really wanted to celebrate that. So this setting is really conducive to that theme. While you're talking about it being a musical, I think it might be worth to go back to the Muppet movie for a second because <laughs> that is also a musical with some absolute bangers. And Alexander de Platt is a wonderful composer in Pinocchio, but um, the music is done in part by Paul Williams in the Muppet movie. And I think he is a wonderful songwriter. And you might know him from uh, Phantom of the Paradise by Brian De Palma. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Or. Um, <laughs> Or is the right of Bugsy Malone? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Who are you laughing at? Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, it's um, that's for another episode. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, 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 I love I love mentioning any movie along the way, but uh, that that's a, a great one to pair with Pinocchio for sure. But uh, mm-hmm. it was up there. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to uh, Francesca's next uh, puzzle piece. What do you got next? Well, since we're on the subject of the fascist Italian setting, my next puzzle piece is Federico Fellini's 1973 Amarcourt. And why I chose this film out of the many, you know, films about fascist Italy is that this is specifically from the perspective of a small town Gentile community. You don't really see many of the atrocities that the fascists were committing, you know, in the concentration camps and all that. It's all from the perspective of of this uh, Gentile community some of whom are outright collaborators of the fascists, some of whom are quiet dissenters. And the central dynamic of the film, first of all, is quite, it's a bit of a dark comedy. It's not a very somber film, much like Pinocchio is. And secondly, the central um, sort of focus is the family dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, It centers around this small family nucleus where you see the father being someone who gets picked up by the fascist police and put under torture. Um, you get to explore the entire town and meet all of its individual, very colorful characters. And just in general, as this ethos of a small Italian town in that period that 
it's not really about any historical figure, any specific historical event. It's more about the experience of living under fascism, how that is, even when you're not something who's on paper actively been persecuted by the regime. Sure. No, I, absolutely. And I've actually never seen Amarcord. Like it's come up many times on this show and it's been on my watch list for a, a million years. But uh, yeah, as far as like that, that tapestry of the town and uh, all these people who are going about their lives, even with that threat above them. I mean, it's uh, it's it's an interesting setting and you can imagine where the, uh, you know, the idea to kind of mix these things together, as we were talking about with Brazil, uh, it it. it provides for such a, a rich world to um, to have these people trying to go about their lives under. The, the other thing, just to weigh in on Amacord, is that it does very effectively parody zealous fascist figures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there is quite a neat parallel that the one time you see Mussolini in uh, Amacord, it's a big uh, decorative head that's talking. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's a banner, isn't it? Yeah, it's talking, and I think there's something quite similar to the way that Mussolini himself does appear in uh, Pinocchio as this very small, very childlike figure. Which I think is something that Pinocchio does very well is that, in despite being a film, as we said, accessible by children, it never dumps down or understates the threat of fascism and uh, just the you know frightening nature of it. Um, but then when you actually see Mussolini and he's this like incredibly goofy, borderline stupid figure, mm-hmm. it kind of dismantles the cult of personality behind it. It kind of shows how um, empty the ideology itself is, despite the fact that the people that follow it can still be individually dangerous and cunning and evil. One yeah. of my least favorite things in films, particularly films since the 90s is just the fetishization and glamorization of fascist and specifically Nazi uh, imagery mm-hmm. that you see a lot of, you know, handsome actors dressed in Nazi uniforms and big swastikas behind them and they make it look cool. I mean, obviously it didn't start in the 90s, it starts with Riefenstahl, but uh, Triumph for the Will wasn't uh, one, of, <laughs> one of our choices today. <laughs> but the what I think Pinocchio does so well, and Amacord does well, is say, these people are stupid. These people right. are very silly for thinking that this looks cool. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. the demythologization and the characterization of this imagery and this set of beliefs is very effective and I think very healthy for well, when we live in a time that is increasingly glamorizing a lot of fascist imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would Inglorious Bastards fit in that uh, with Christoph Waltz as uh, such a classic character in that movie? But kind of fits in what you're talking about there. I think so to to an to an extent. I think that Inglorious Bastards, even though it's not my favorite Tarantino film, is doing something a bit different because it's combining it with like grindhouse films and sure and B and B movie. But at the, but at the same time, there is this sort of awkward sense of do you think that these people look cool even if you don't think they are cool do you think they look cool if so i think you should reassess why you're making this film mm. no that's, that's a very fair point absolutely i've got With complicated feelings about tarantino <laughs> yeah i'd love to see yeah. his pinocchio <laughs> every oh sure everyone should have 
complicated feelings about Tarantino. But uh, <laughs> I'll go on to my next piece, which is going to be 2001's AI, uh, Spielberg's oh. completion of the final Kubrick project, uh, which kind of, you know, itself is inspired very much by the Pinocchio story, the classic Pinocchio story uh, about this artificial child learning uh, to be accepted in the world and, um, you know, all the good and bad that's in the world and in family and in uh, connection with his human counterparts. And uh, again, also mixes very well the, the dark with the more warm and uh it's almost like mixing the kubrick with the spielberg uh in in the way that ai turned out and uh a very just multi-layered story there's so much to ai uh which also leads to the runtime but um you know there's a there's a lot to dig into with that movie a lot of themes being explored as we've talked about here with pinocchio already with some of these pieces being able to bring up things like brazil and and you know even avatar and all these things like there's just so many different angles to kind of look into a film like guillermo del toro's pinocchio uh is the way that AI turned out. Actually, AI is one of those films I grew up with. I had the VHS as a kid and I just watched it plenty of times. But I haven't rewatched it since because, I don't know, I was kind of worried, you know, as an adult you read reviews before watching a film and AI seems not to have aged particularly well in contemporary critical circles. So I prefer to keep it as a memory of my childhood as of now. I think you will be surprised at how well it holds up. Mm -hmm. I think that in the last, very recently, it's had a sort of renaissance among particularly our generation of yeah. uh, film fans, that it is a very heartfelt and very sweet film. And it does some really interesting stuff. The other thing is like the coda of, um, of AI does have a lot of similarities to the very esoteric like death realm that Pinocchio goes to every time oh, yeah. he dies. Oh yeah, sure. That, and you have these yeah. sort of otherworldly inhuman figures explaining about the nature of this non-human character's death. It's, it's a really interesting parallel. And obviously, I think they are compared in AI to the Blue Fairy, mm -hmm. like quite explicitly. But it, it is interesting that these parallels are, are so well pronounced. Yeah, no, it's interesting also because, you know, preparing for this episode, that was kind of mentally going through adaptations of Pinocchio. And AI is kind of explicitly an adaptation of Pinocchio. Right. But it didn't even come to mind, honestly, because I was thinking about films titled Pinocchio. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting thing about that. Do you, know, uh, do you know why Kubrick didn't direct AI? Other than the fact that he died. But Other do you know that. why it took him so long to make? <laughs> no. And he never made it. It's because he was waiting for the technology to catch up that he could actually build a robot boy to play the role in the film. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but while he was sitting on the idea and realizing he probably was never going to get there before, you know, he just pivots to making Eyes Wide Shut, which I think takes over a year of just filming, is that he was just considering, should I just make a Pinocchio movie? Yeah. Hmm. And ultimately he didn't because we don't need another one. Well, we were just waiting for the masterpiece that was Zemeckis's. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Tom Hanks giving less than a percentage points worth of effort. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing a lot of funny voices this year. That's for sure. Um, I think he's very good in Elvis, by the way. 
Oh, he is. He's Unironically, I think Tom Hanks is very good in Elvis. I completely agree. Completely. Uh, let's go to your third piece, Charlie. Since you asked, my pick is the 2008 Hayao Miyazaki-directed Studio Ghibli film Ponyo. All right. The reason I chose this is because I realized, A, I had, hadn't chosen a single animated film. Okay. Even, even the Muppet movie, which is puppetry, not animation. Sure. Although I think it might have a small amount of stop motion or mechanics or whatever. Uh, the reason I chose Ponyo is because it's the Miyazaki film that deals the most with learning what it is to be a person and be a human in an unfamiliar world. In this case, it's Ponyo, who is a small fish person who grows legs and turns into a little girl and is actively resisting against the very patriarchal structures, in this case, literally by her uh, father, who is a sea wizard, who wants her to come back to the sea, and her adoptive mother, essentially, and her adoptive brother trying to protect her and let her live her own life. Mm-hmm. I also think the parallels are interesting because the final act of Pinocchio takes place at sea, in the belly of uh, Il Monstro, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, and the dogfish. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. In this version, it's after the original novel, it's the dogfish. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting confused with the, with the uh, Disney version. That's the version. Disney version. It's it is Il Monstro. Yeah. <laughs> that's my bad. Uh, whereas, and the final act of Ponyo takes place in, essentially the ocean has taken over this entire Japanese town and everything is underwater. <laughs> so there is a nice parallel there. But the reason I chose it is because it's a way of using animation to show transformation and unfamiliarity with one's surroundings. And I think um, it's probably one of the most underrated Miyazakis. Yeah, no, because if you're talking about those themes, obviously one can bring up Spirited Away does that a lot. Uh, but I actually haven't seen Ponyo and you're now selling it to me very, very it, well. It's really wonderful. Yeah. If you watch the English dub of it, which I know you don't love watching dubs, but I tend to with Ghibli, this one's worth it because the sea wizard is played by Liam Neeson. Okay. <laughs> and he's really good. <laughs> nice. Have you seen Ponyo? I actually have not. No, uh, Studio Ghibli films are a big blind spot for me. I haven't seen any of them, actually. And uh, one of these days, I'm going to just have to like marathon a few of them or something because they come up all the time and uh, you know they're so beloved. And it sounds great, everything you're talking about there. And um, you know those, those particular... Uh, parallels that you were drawing, um, you know, it makes it sound really like a really awesome film. Can I make a recommendation if you do get into Studio Ghibli films? Mm-hmm. Is don't just watch or even don't just start with the most famous ones because something that I found is so wonderful about those films is that you can find one that really speaks to you personally. Mm-hmm. And I think if you default to watching the most popular or the best regarded and you think that this is the ultimate pinnacle of what they're doing because other people say that that's so i think you miss out on the experience of finding one that can be very personal and very individually close to your heart i also think that's worth it because there aren't there isn't a bad one yeah, yeah. also don't just stop a miyazaki there are so yeah, many it, it's, it, yeah, it's, a, it's a big yeah. studio yeah. yeah yeah absolutely well francesco let's go to your third piece well, once again, fits in very well with what we're talking about. Uh, in this case, I was particularly thinking of unconventional um, fairy tale adaptations. And Guillermo del Toro is a huge fan of Beauty and the Beast. He named 
the Jean Cocteau's uh, Jean Cocteau's adaptation of Beauty and the Beast as one of the ten greatest films ever made. Obviously, a huge influence on The Shape of Water. Yeah. But that's not the version I want to talk about today. The version I want to talk about today, which I'm sure neither of you have seen, is the 1978 adaptation of Beauty and the Beast by Czech director Juraj Hertz. And the reason why I'm bringing this seemingly out of the blue is that uh, Hertz was mostly a horror director and he makes his adaptation of Beauty and the Beast that has a lot of horror elements in it. The castle of the beast, instead of looking at its traditional like lavish castle with a bit of overgrown uh, weeds here and there, mm. looks like a proper horror movie setting. There's literally like a puddle of like ooze in the middle of it. Everything is like drab and dilapidated. And the beast himself has got such a unique design because in this version, he doesn't look like a a guy in a furry costume, right. I want to say. <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like, you know, his usual, like, lion slash, um, you know, dog self. Uh, he looks like a bird. Mm -hmm. So all the human features are completely indiscernible in his face, other than his eyes. He looks completely non-human. And, and which is why this version has almost a Cyrano de Bergerac type of uh, plot to it where the beauty doesn't actually see the beast until the very very end because he keeps himself uh, hidden away from her um, and so she falls in love with his voice and she falls in love with his words um, and then only then does she get to see how he actually looks like and the reason why I'm bringing this version up is because we haven't mentioned but Del Toro takes so many horror elements in this version of Pinocchio yeah. um, I've looked at all of the scenes of all the adaptations of the moment when Pinocchio comes to life. And every single time it's a magical moment, it's a beautiful moment. Even in the original story, uh, Geppetto always makes Pinocchio because he wants him to come to life. But in this version, Geppetto makes Pinocchio in a drunken stupor. And then when Pinocchio comes to life, he looks like a horror monster. Like his yeah. limbs are disjointed. He's like cranking himself back into place. And it's shown as something almost like terrifying that uh, Geppetto has to deal with mm -hmm. now. And th that's why I really wanted to bring up this version of Beauty and the Beast because the use of the horror elements, the creative costume design, which is something that is super pervasive throughout the whole of uh, Del Toro's you know, filmography, especially his live action films. And just, I wanted to bring in probably my favorite adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, but the one that no one has seen. So, yeah. yeah, I've never seen that. That sounds great. And I, I while you were talking, I brought up uh, that picture of the beast. And I mean, it's what a crazy so like, design. I. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is uh, that's awesome. And I, I I'm not including this as a puzzle piece for me, but to, to some of the things you were just talking about, I guess we could throw in as a bonus puzzle piece, Frankenstein, which I think is yeah. definitely being uh, kind of invoked here in the way that the townspeople react to this version of Pinocchio. And again, to just you know, using horror imagery in telling the story. Yeah. And also like all these stories, Frankenstein, Beauty and the Beast and Pinocchio are about people, well, especially Beauty and the Beast and Pinocchio, but like literally having to transform into their true selves or like having outsiders look past their outward appearance and see them as human. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it, there's a reason why there's such an influence on Del Toro as a whole. Absolutely. Well, I'll go yeah. to my final piece, uh, which, you know, we, we're, we've talked multiple times about uh, Zemeckis' Pinocchio that came out earlier this year. And um, back in 2018, there was also a Disney remake uh, of a classic uh, 
cartoon movie. Uh, it was The Jungle Book. And then at the same time, Andy Serkis made a darker live action take with Mowgli. And so I figured I'd use that as a puzzle piece here just to talk about just the the making of this, the, the idea that two completely different takes on the same subject could, you know, be made with vastly different tones and uh, different approaches. And uh, while this one, you know, we've talked about, there's still, you know, a kid could watch it and there's still fun to be had. And it's, it's actually really funny in parts and the musical numbers are great. Uh, it's definitely a much darker take on the material overall. And like we we're talking about the horror influence on it. And uh, just to be able to go in two completely different directions in the same year, even uh, Mowgli definitely comes to mind. I would also just point out, Mowgli, another Netflix movie. That's true. Absolutely. Running in parallel to a Disney release. Yeah. Um, that's even, even more spooky. <laughs> and you know, going closer to the book yeah. than just remaking the Disney version. Absolutely. Which, yeah, if you contrast the box office success of The Jungle Book without Mowgli, makes it look quite drab for Del Toro's Pinocchio this year, but that's why it's on Netflix, so it's not really going to hinge on box office success as much as clicks. Well, to be fair, I don't think Mowgli got a theatrical release at all. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 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 Uh, that that was just... an era when Netflix was still holding every single one of its originals for strictly Netflix and not putting it even for a week in the theater. That's true, yeah. Oh, no, there, there was a theatrical uh, 3D release. There was release, ignore that. Oh, really? I mean, anyway, let this be a call to action of like, don't let... I mean, if you're listening to this episode, you probably have seen Pinocchio, but um, if by any chance you got to this point and you still haven't seen Pinocchio, don't let Pinocchio fatigue win over you. This by far the best adaptation this year. Personally, my favorite adaptation of Pinocchio ever made, but that's debatable. Yeah. Right on. I'm going to uh, read down our our finished puzzle list here, and then we'll get into some closing thoughts. We talked about The Muppet Movie, My Life as a Zucchini, Avatar, Brazil, Amarcord, AI, Ponyo, uh, the 1978 Beauty and the Beast adaptation. We threw Frankenstein in there, and then Mowgli, a really interesting and very wide range of uh, themes and uh, styles within these puzzle pieces going everywhere from really dark stuff to more family-friendly fare and animated and uh, stop motion and live action, which, like we've been saying, I mean, this movie kind of does throw all that together into a really interesting, weird pot, which that's del toro for you but uh, do you guys have any uh closing thoughts anything we didn't quite get into while talking puzzle pieces uh we'll go with you first charlie well to be on brand i think that on the one hand you can say if you like Neil del toro's pinocchio check out any of these films but likewise if you like any of these films then pinocchio might also be right up your street for a variety of reasons i really appreciate what uh, del toro is doing and just sort of not just coasting on what people expect from him. And he's always pushing the envelope and doing something that is distinctly him. And in my opinion, doing a great job at it, even when he makes a film that isn't his best film, it's always fascinating. There's always something to admire in it. I also think if you're interested in what Del Toro is watching or what Del Toro is thinking about, not just within the creative process, but just what he appreciates if you think this is a guy, as we said earlier, who genuinely loves the form and loves the medium. Uh, 
You can follow him on Twitter, but also that Letterboxd has compiled a list of every recommendation that Del Toro has ever made <laughs> on Twitter, which um, I'm sure I can send to David and he can share on his uh, social media. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful list because it's so um, far-reaching and you get a sense of this is a guy that, you know, lives and breathes film and cinema and clearly this is a great way for me to reach outside of my comfort zone by listening to this person whose opinion I admire's recommendations. Absolutely. Yeah. Francesco, uh, anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't quite get to? Um, well, I didn't really bring up too many already famous animated films out of fear of, of you know, being too obvious. But I do want to shout out just a lot of non-CG, non-Disney-fied animated films and animation studios that are out there are making films like the studio Laika, who made Coraline more famously, but they also made Kuban the Two Strings a couple of years after. Mm -hmm. um, the studio Cartoon Saloon, who recently made Wolf Walkers last year and Song of the Sea before that. They're absolutely amazing. They, do, they don't do stop motion, they do 2D. And just because earlier we were bringing up, you know, lesser known Studio Ghibli films, um, one that I'd like to shout out is uh, The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which is not directed by Miyazaki, but it is this story about a girl having to trans like who comes from a different planet comes from space and she has to adapt to human society and transform into a human somewhat until she realizes that that's not really where she belongs mm. so it's 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 a very pinocchio story that i wish i thought about earlier i will also say that there are a couple of movies that aren't necessarily for children but do deal with the question of what it is to be and attempt to pass as human in a world uh, so the ones that come to mind are 2013's Under the, Under the Skin, directed by Jonathan Glazer and Ex Machina, mm -hmm. which is sure. 2014, directed by Alex Garland. And those are both really interesting takes on it and deal more so than Pinocchio with the idea of gender and passing not just as a human, but as a woman. I think that those will be really interesting think, things to think about alongside Pinocchio. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that was quite stuttery, but I think I made a point. I, I think you, I think you got it in there. There's, there's a, a lot of adult layers to this, you know, and that's definitely part of what this, uh, this specific adaptation is. But uh, only closing thing I wanted to mention is just the fact that we've never gotten a chance to do a Del Toro film on piecing it together yet. So I'm happy Ooh. it's this one, and uh, I think it was a, a great one to talk about and to get into some of the things that I'm sure. Uh, as we talk about, he's such a lover of cinema. I'm sure uh, Del Toro loves a lot of the things we talked about here today. So, uh, yeah, that does it for Pinocchio. Guys, I always close these episodes by asking for a recommendation of a movie you watched recently. Um, Charlie, let's start with you. Uh, what's something you watched recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Last movie that I saw in the cinema was Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which doesn't need a recommendation because it seems to be doing extremely well on its own. Sure. But the movie I saw before that is a movie that I think a lot of people might really, might really enjoy, but wouldn't necessarily see on their own, is um, Triangle of Sadness. Mm. Oh, yeah. Which is directed by Ruben Ostland, uh, the same guy that directed uh, Force Majeure, which is one of my favorite films. Yeah, and The Square. Yeah, which I've not seen, but I've heard it's very good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's wonderful, it's very funny, um, and if you're interested in you know, satire that doesn't really pull any punches as something really wonderful um, in that in that film. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also realize I have used the word wonderful way too much in this episode. <laughs> it's a wonderful And my movie. apologies to your listeners who hate that word. <laughs> Francesco, what do you got? Uh, well, the last film I saw in the cinema is The Banshees of Inisherin, which I saw you already did an episode on, so no need for me to sell you on that. Um, just in terms of films I saw on my own that I really loved, um, the last episode we put out on Because You Watched the Time of Recording is the episode on the original Black Panther. And the film I brought up as an alternate to that is 2009 Black Dynamite, which is probably the one of the funniest films I've seen, wow. certainly the funniest film I've seen this year. So if you're not looking for like recent releases, but just something to have fun with, Go check that out. It's probably it's just such a highlight. So of funny. The past couple of months. Or check out check out the podcast, and you can hear oh, well, even more. We're about to plug it now. Uh, oh, so. oh, I didn't know we'd get a chance. Yeah, let's get to some plugs. But yeah, but Black Time is so funny. But uh, yeah, tell people again where they can find uh, the podcast. Um, so on Twitter, if that's still going to be online by the time this comes out, <laughs> who knows? Uh, we are uh, BCU Watched Podcast. No. It's the other way around. BCU Watch Pod on Twitter yeah. and BCU Watch Podcast on Instagram. It's a long story. It's not important. But you can find us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Yeah. But make sure it's because you watched with three dots at the end of it and not one that was discontinued years ago. <laughs> yeah, there you Which go. isn't us. Yeah. So many adaptations of the title, like uh, much like Pinocchio. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. And look out for whatever episode we do with David. I'm looking forward <laughs> yeah. to it, guys. And uh, hopefully we'll get I you back wait. here on Piecing It Together again sometime soon. Uh, mm-hmm. Can't wait for that either. He's Johnny. And he's Darren. Do you like movies? Do you like your childhood? Do you like movies from your childhood? Do you like podcasts about movies from your childhood? If you answered yes to one or all those questions, then you might enjoy NostalgiaCast. It's a podcast about movies from your childhood. So if you're nostalgic for nostalgia, then you might like NostalgiaCast. See, that's the name of our podcast, NostalgiaCast. Yeah, I I think they got that. Should we sign off? Let's do it. I'm Johnny. And he's Darren. And And this this is is NostalgiaCast. I win. (laughs) All right. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation about Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And uh, I just want to say thank you for listening. We have a lot more piecing it together on the way, so make sure you're subscribed wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review. We'd really appreciate those five-star ratings. It definitely helps to get the word out about the show. Of course, you could share the show, follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Get in touch if you ever want to join me for an episode or if you need a guest for one of your podcasts. I'm always happy to do that. And uh, yeah, there's also the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group. There's the Produced by David Rosen Patreon. There's my new album, more content coming up soon. Lots of stuff to check out. So uh, you could check the show notes and please do that. Also check out our great guests website and podcast so let's close this thing out with a piece of my music like i always do i don't know i've been playing a lot of stuff from the new album lately more content which again comes out december 30th and is available for pre-order right now but i don't know i feel like playing something else so uh i'm gonna play the title track from my fourth album a different kind of dream this is a song called a different kind of dream hope you enjoy it we'll be back with more piecing it together real soon
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.